welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today I'm covering the news to know for the week of October 28th. So let's get to some of the stories. Probably the biggest story this week came out in the Washington Post. The title is Healthcare System Causing Rampant Burnout Among Doctors and Nurses. As many as half of all clinicians suffer from the problem, creating risks to patients, malpractice claims, and absenteeism, the study finds. Uh, I'll read you a few paragraphs here. This, this article, by the way, it came out on October 23rd. And it's written by William Wan. Imagine a healthcare system which doctors and nurses are so exhausted and beaten down that many of them work like zombies, error-prone, apathetic towards patients, and at times trying to blunt their own pain with alcohol or even suicide attempts. That is what America's broken healthcare system is doing to its health workers, according to a 312-page report released on Wednesday by the National Academy of Medicine, one of the country's most prestigious medical institutions. This is a quote from Christine Castle, a professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco, who was the chair of the committee. Uh, it's a moral issue, a patient care issue, and a financial issue. Yes, absolutely. Uh, here she goes on and says, in recent years, as medical community has grown increasingly alarmed over the problems of burnout, the proposed solutions have focused on increasing the resilience of individual doctors and nurses. What this report is saying is that this is a systemic problem that requires systemic solutions. You can't just teach doctors meditation, yoga, and self-care. We need fundamental changes. Another, this is uh, Chief Medical Officer from Blue Cross Blue Shield speaking here. The problem often starts with a well-intentioned, perfectly reasonable law, which is interpreted and made into a policy, often taking the most conservative path possible for legal protection. A law about patient privacy, for example, becomes a quirk on a doctor's terminal that ends their sessions every few minutes, requiring them to repeatedly log in and out throughout the day, adding frustration and burden to their days. Burnout is expensive. One study cited by Wednesday's report found that it costs the medical system $4.6 billion a year. Some of that cost comes from doctors reducing their hours, quitting their jobs, or leaving medicine altogether. There was a long list of changes needed. Here are some of them. Healthcare organizations should create executive level chief wellness officers to monitor and protect clinicians' well-being and develop IT programs to reduce repetitive and redundant paperwork. Medical and nursing schools should train students to deal with burnout. Federal and state regulators should identify and eliminate overlapping regulations. Medical licensure agencies should find ways for doctors to seek help without having it used against them, such as in malpractice litigation. And federal officials should develop a coordinated research agenda to understand the problem and how to alleviate it. None of this, in my opinion, is shocking to this audience. I do like that line, you can't just teach doctors meditation, yoga, and self-care. We need the big fundamental changes. I know of one medical group president that thought the providers needed resilience training and that would make them happy invested a couple hundred thousand dollars into bringing in consultants and experts in resilience. I personally don't buy that approach that says, yes, your life sucks, but look at it from a different angle and you'll see how it isn't so bad. I understand the attempt. 
it may very well be effective for keeping new providers from descending into a bad place. But in my experience, a provider that is already struggling is not going to engage or respond to such a program. So why do I think this article is important for CMIOs to know about? Because I believe that CMIOs and provider informaticists and the trainers that work with providers have a unique opportunity to identify that struggling provider. It's nowhere in our training. No one teaches us to, to find these providers. Not on the board exam, it's something that is generally learned on the job or is just innate to the people that, that are attracted to informatics. There seems to be this underlying desire to make things genuinely better for our colleagues. That's what resonates with all the people I've, I've ever interviewed. The, uh, the American Medical Association, they have a pretty decent tool that helps recognizing burnout. And for those of you that are training informaticists or are just coaching and guiding the next generation that's coming along behind you, even if you're not in a formal academic institution, consider adding something like this into your curriculum of building uh, our next generation because identifying burnout is is going to be that first step and then don't try to tackle this alone it is a multidisciplinary approach which frequently involves practice redesign physician coaching EMR optimization and a wellness component and I like that part of the recommendation from the National Academy of Medicine here about having a chief wellness officer that would be the point person that's going to pull all the resources together a CMIO is certainly on that working group, but this would consume all of your time if you were to try and lead it. But it's still really important work and something that CMIOs, I think, should be involved with as part of something that we do all the time. All right, the next article. This one's a quick one. It comes from uh, HHS.gov. The OCR imposes a 2.1 million civil money penalty against Jackson Health System for a HIPAA violation. These occurred between 2013 and 2016. Uh, just in case you don't know who Jackson Health is, they are an academic medical system, not-for-profit in Miami, Florida. They have six hospitals and a slew of ambulatory endeavors as well. On August 22, 2013, they submitted a breach report to OCR stating that its health information management department had lost paper records containing the protected health information of 756 patients. An internal investigation determined that an additional three boxes of patient records were also lost in December 2012. However, they did not report the additional loss or the increase of number of individuals that were affected, which increased up to 1,436, and they didn't report that until June of 2016. The next problem they had. In July of 2015, the OCR initiated an investigation following a media report that disclosed the PHI of a system patient. A reporter had shared a photograph of a JHS operating room screen containing the patient's medical information on social media. JHS subsequently determined that two employees had accessed this patient's electronic medical record without a job-related purpose. On February 19, 2016, JHS submitted a breach report to the OCR reporting that an employee had been selling PHI. The employee had inappropriately accessed over 24,000 patient records since 2011. OCR's investigation revealed that JHS failed to provide timely and accurate breach notification to the Secretary of HHS, conduct enterprise-wide risk analyses, manage identified risks to a reasonable and appropriate level, regularly review information system activity records, and restrict authorization of its workforce members' access to patient 
electronic PHI to the minimum necessary to accomplish their job duties. I just bring this article up for awareness that this stuff and this stuff happens out there every day. Keep it on your radar. Be vigilant. It's a scary, scary world out there. I don't know what else to say about this one. All right. Next, this was a great article. Um, it, I, I picked it up from uh, HITConsultant.net. The title is ECRI Institute, the Top Four Biggest Risks in Ambulatory Care to Watch. And it was written on October 23rd. So ECRI Institute is formerly known as the Emergency Care Research Institute. It's an independent, not-for-profit organization, organization that reports on cost-effectiveness and kind of reports on the value of, of products and things that are going on in healthcare. Um, so they came up with a report that cites the most frequent safety risk patient, uh, patient events in ambulatory care. So they say that there's five challenges in ambulatory care that are kind of bringing out these risks. Number one, rapid acquisition of new geographically dispersed locations or practices. Number two, fewer resources or still developing utilization of system resources dedicated to safety, quality, and risk compared to what goes on in the hospitals. There's divergent processes, procedures, and workflows across settings. There's less formal training and experience in safety and quality improvement methods among clinical staff. And there's a need for a cultural shift towards improving safety reporting and monitoring. So let's get into the details of what they found. They analyzed 4,355 adverse events reported by the physician practices, ambulatory care centers, and community health centers between December 2017 and November 2018, nearly half of the events involved diagnostic testing errors and a quarter reported medication safety errors. The rest involved falls, security and safety, and privacy-related risks. So let's talk about number one, the diagnostic testing errors. Uh, the problem is while many hospitalized patients have diagnostic testing performed during their stay, ambulatory care facilities typically refer patients to specialists or to off-site laboratories or clinics for testing, which can create gaps in care if tests are not tracked well or results are not followed up. They suggest solutions that include providing decision support tools to providers and monitoring processes for test tracking and follow-up. Number two was medication safety errors and two-thirds of the analyzed medications events were classified as wrong drug, wrong patient, or wrong time. Medication errors are a leading cause of malpractice claims in ambulatory care. They suggested solutions around implementing standardized medication management procedures and creating a policy directing how to report and manage safety events. Number three are falls. Half of the events analyzed occur in the exam room or waiting room. Solutions include screening for falls and proactively identifying patients at high risk. HIPAA violations, misunderstanding concerns around HIPAA and the security rules. They had 350 HIPAA-related events reported to ECRI during the study. The majority of these pertain to inadvertent disclosure of patients' protected health information. Dug in a little deeper on this. This was mostly mishandling medical records. So a staff member handed one patient another patient's after visit summary, or they sent letters intended for one patient to the wrong patient, or uh, they sent patient information to the wrong provider. Other HIPAA-related events included stolen or lost mobile devices with unencrypted data and employees disclosing PHI in social settings or in office conversations in open settings and unauthorized accessing of patient files by employees. 
And the last thing they mention here is security and safety events. The vast majority of events involve verbal threats or disruptive behavior by patients or visitors. And solutions include educating staff on what to do in violent incident and conducting monthly safety and security surveillance rounds. The CEO of ECRI said reducing and eliminating adverse events in an outpatient environment will require an unprecedented commitment to collaboration and coordination. My thoughts. Yes, ambulatory care has risks and there are significantly less resources devoted to reducing those risks in ambulatory. I think the feeling is that the chance for harm is less compared to a wrong site surgery or an instrument left inside a patient or that's just less visible. A medication error probably won't happen in our clinic. It's going to happen in the patient's home, and so it's less likely to be reported or recognized. There certainly is improvement for opportunity here for CMIO to, to get involved in this endeavor. So what would happen in your system if you ordered a CT scan, and for whatever the reason, the results get routed to a fax machine that nobody checks? Or an error in the results routing scheme causes the results to get stuck in the queue and never goes out. And these are not made up scenarios. These do happen. How long would it be until the provider figures out that that lapse occurred? Now, hopefully the patient's engaged in their care and they're going to call for their test results. But that's not the best answer because really nobody wants to be in the situation that four weeks went by and the patient calls for their results and you have to tell them, ah, Sorry, uh, there was a mass on that scan, and I really wish I'd called you sooner. That does not inspire confidence. So do you have an alerting system in place for open orders? How long does that order stay open before you flag someone that there is a problem? That's a difficult one to institute because some tests are not being ordered to be done tomorrow. They're being done for some date in the future, which means you have to have an accurate date on the order of when it's expected. Do you have a falls risk assessment in place for the medical assistants that's part of their rooming activity where you can detect and try to prevent falls in your offices? Do you have a safety culture where events are reported without a focus on blame and shame, which is still the case for most places that we do the blame and shame thing? And do you have any of those HIPAA violations that happen in your clinics? I bet you do, and I bet you they go underreported. So this article is worth looking at and discussing with your ambulatory leaders, and particularly if you are an ambulatory CMIO, uh, Google ECRI, Safe Ambulatory Care, and you'll find that article. It's worth a look. Next article. This one is uh, out of modern healthcare. Text messaging adds considerations for EHR documentation. Written by Jessica Kim Cohen. So this article talks about the convenience of text messaging, but you're losing some of the medical record if this is occurring in a third-party system. So here's a couple of quotes. While convenient text messaging has raised concerns about physicians making care management and treatment decisions without properly documenting them in the EHR. This is a quote from the, the assistant professor of biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt. The EHR is considered the source of truth, where people go to find information. You don't want to create all these silos of information where there might be important discussion about treatment and management strategies. To get relevant information into patient notes easily, Vanderbilt University is looking into integrating its messaging service with the EHR, which hopefully will streamline the workflow so that physicians don't feel like they're documenting information that is recorded elsewhere. 
Some EHR vendors offer their own secure chat tools so that clinicians can discuss care decisions and document relevant information without needing to switch between systems. And I love this quote from Dr. Paul Testa, NYU's Chief Medical Information Officer said, exchange of data is not documentation of clinical data. So my thoughts, secure test messaging is up and coming. We need to get our providers away from SMS. There's still way too much PHI going out but through that method. And it's just not a good method for communicating. So we can certainly improve on communication and efficiency. But if every part of a thread has to be picked up and brought over into the EMR, then it's going to be a pain and it's going to hinder adoption. So if I'm using a third-party tool, I'm just going to throw out one such as Spoke or Tiger Text. If I then have to cut and paste that conversation into my EHR, I'm not going to do it. And so, yes, there's going to be data and information about that patient that is not in EHR. I think this is about the same as a phone call, though. If there's something meaningful that transpired, then document it. You're going to open up a telephone-type note and put it in the system. If you have the benefit of an integrated secure messaging tool, then great, this should only be one or two clicks away from putting this into a note template. If you're in a separate app, imagine having to navigate into the correct chart and then start that documentation. That's just not likely to happen. So do you really want all this information is the next thing? This, in my opinion, going to add to the bulk of data that's in an EHR that we don't find particularly useful. And most vendors have this option to vaporize these messages after a period of time. I'm a fan that this is not part of the permanent record. There's going to be institutional variation here. I personally don't think there's a lot of value to these messages. I think they had too much noise. I think it's better off to have the provider put in a quick summary of anything that's significant. If you and the specialists are having conversations about, yeah, this patient's ready to go home, fantastic. You're going to document that in your discharge summary and not in a separate uh, note about the conversation. I think that that's just a waste. I think we need to keep our documentation efficient as well. That's my two cents. Next article. This one was just interesting. It comes out of the New York Times. The title is, you got a brain scan at the hospital and someday a computer may use it to identify you. In a disturbing experiment, imaging and facial recognition technologies were used to match research, research subjects to their MRI scans. So this is being done, I think, at Mayo. They're doing thousands of MRI scans and combining it with cognitive and genetic tests to research Alzheimer's disease. And the patients are assuming that their privacy is protected. The researchers have removed their names and other identifying information from the records. So what happened here is an MRI scan includes the entire head, including the subject's face. And while it's still a blurry image, it was enough for advanced imaging technology to reconstruct the face. And then using facial recognition software, they were able to match that individual. And so they did, this was done in a study. There were 84 healthy participants in this study. And... They all had their MRIs done, and then they used AI and facial recognition software to see if they could be matched, and 70 of the subjects were matched. Only one correct match would have been expected by chance. So my take on this, we all know that genetic tests can't be de-identified. You can't take your DNA and strip it of its identity without destroying the underlying material. So this is not unique. It is a problem in research, and now it appears something similar is happening here with MRIs, that 
There are thousands of de-identified MRI scans already out there and available in the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, and these patients assume their identity is safe, but maybe it's not. There's probably nothing a CMIO needs to do about this today because there probably isn't anything that you could do about it today, even if you wanted to. But I do highlight it because it's interesting how the advancement in artificial intelligence is opening up some challenges in the medical field. And you'll see more of these. It's real fascinating about uh, how you can reconstruct someone's identity. I'm going to do, let's see if we can do two more here and still stay within a reasonable amount of time. All right, so this one is in, out of Healthcare IT News by Mike Milliard, October 25th. Telehealth titans discuss cost savings of virtual care, describe the hospital of the future. And so there was a panel people got together at the Hims Connected Health Conference in Boston. Dr. John Halamka, sorry John if I said your name wrong there. He is an international healthcare innovation professor at Harvard. And there are four other telehealth experts, all who were vendors. This is from American Well and I think MD Live was in there as well. And one of their points was, this is they're saying the same story they've been saying for years. Telehealth is just healthcare. Hospitals are going away. Um, here's, a, here's a quote. Um, when we... Uh, let me do this quote instead. Um, As telehealth becomes more commonplace, the rise of the virtualist, the doctor who takes care of the easy stuff, the flu, the sinus, the chronic disease that is stable, leaving more high acuity cases to the hands-on specialists. And the Harvard professor here is agreeing, saying that in the future, virtualist centers are what we're going to be formally called hospitals. There's going to be an emergency department for heart attacks and strokes, an ICU tower right next door, which take care of the sickest of the sick, and then everything else is going to be care at home. And there's going to be a level of intensity that could never be moved out of such a place but other than that, everything else is going to ambulatory. It all gets moved to the home. And one of the final quotes here is, you're going to see this model get adopted in every hospital in 10 to 15 years or they're going out of business. Because, and the hospitals are trying to pay for these expensive campuses they built, but there's not going to be any people in them. My take, sorry, I'm still not buying it. You know, keep in mind, these are industry experts who are vendors. So they're still going to have the vision that all the business is going to be theirs but it isn't, not unless there are massive regulatory payment and legal reforms that happen in this country. Because once that patient steps foot on our campus, Entala takes over and that's gonna keep the ER full. It may be possible to steer some patients with some minor things out of our ER and we should move those patients who show up for med refills and pregnancy tests, but someone's gotta educate the consumer and who's going to do that? Because I don't see it happening right now on a large scale. You are not going to eliminate the hospital med surge unit because there is not enough social support in the home to provide 24-7 sick care to these people. They come into our hospital needing diagnostic tests done and they need nursing care and that's not happening virtually. And due to malpractice concerns, providers are going to continue to refer patients to the emergency room and the emergency room physicians are going to recommend admission because the incentives still drive patients into the brick and mortar facilities. I do not see that we have the appetite to tackle these issues yet in this country. Perhaps during this election cycle, something happens. I just haven't seen it. I am not saying that we should ignore telehealth. Don't get me wrong there. Just don't get too sucked into the hype cycle either. The moving stuff online does make sense, 
but don't be surprised by the slow adoption curve. And I'm going to jump into the next telehealth article, which I think might not be a jump in the right direction here. Tampa General Hospital on Med uh, was selected as a partner for new telehealth stations. That's O-N-M-E-D. October 16th, this one came out. Nathan Eddy was the author. And so what did they do? On Med Station is designed to provide virtual life-size consultations with physicians and automated pharmaceutical services and is the result of more than a six-year development by this Florida-based startup. The initial development of stations is part of the hospital's health plan. Uh, they're um, making this available to staff members only, and it's not clear if or when the stations will be open up for patient use. Ahmed Solutions offer a high-definition video and audio capability, which allow for real-time consultations with a doctor or advanced practice provider. The stations can take height, weight, body mass index measurements, as well as readings of blood pressure, respiration, and blood oxygen saturation. Other capabilities include thermal imaging to read body temperature and diagnose infection, and ability to dispense hundreds of common medications. In an effort to provide patient comfort, privacy, health, and security, the stations also boost features such as privacy glass, and high output ultraviolet surface and air sanitation which eliminates pathogens after every patient visit. The stations have biometric security features with multi-factor authentication for pharmacy vault access with code and key locks, a retractable armrest and seat, and a payment system. And OneMed, uh, the, the Tampa General is saying that they're looking to partner with OneMed, excuse me, OnMed, to place this innovative health technology station in various public consumer-facing areas such as local schools and airports. So this is not new. You may remember HealthSpot, which was done in partnership with the Cleveland Clinic. They went out of business in 2016. This is a very similar concept. Their pods were about 12 feet long by 5 feet wide and about 8 feet tall. Just to give you an example of what we're talking about. This is not a small unit. These OnMed pods look very similar to me. Uh, at HealthSpot, they had an attendant at the booth, and I assume OnMed's going to have one too. There's going to be some labor costs. Someone has to be there to disinfect the equipment, assist patients, and restock supplies. The OnMed model has added costs with built-in of hundreds of medications. That's going to be huge addition to their overhead, and I doubt that's going to be sustainable. I don't know if you've ever tried to dispense meds out of your office before. I have the regulatory requirements. They're unique to each state, but they are not insignificant. Alarm systems, physical locks, inventory control, and precise dispensing procedures all make this cost prohibitive to break even. I know some urgent care centers can do this, but most have found this is not core to their business and it's better to let CVS and Walgreens handle the meds. This is an innovative attempt to disrupt healthcare, but I think you could get the same outcome using a $100 iPad. This physical exam just isn't adding that much value to the diagnosis and management of minor acute issues like urinary tract infections and URIs. And that is mostly what is being done in the telehealth space. So my advice, don't go into your garage and start building these 12 foot by 5 foot uh, pods in your garage with plans to disperse them throughout town. That's just my two cents. I think telehealth will continue to grow. I think it is making market for itself, not necessarily shifting market. I do not see that ED visits are dropping significantly, at least in the market that I'm in. And I think it's going to be many years before that really does happen. I'm going to cover just one quick thing here. 
I'm just going to give you the name of the article. It's called SwipeSense Combines EHR Data with Real-Time Location Service Data to Deliver Operational Insights. And I got this on uh, HITConsultant.net. This is really interesting technology that I think CMIOs should be aware of. Real-time location services is not new. For those of you who are not familiar with it, these are usually badges that are put on equipment, staff, or patients to track where they go throughout the hospital. In the past, they have been incredibly expensive because of the need to run antennas all over the place. But the systems that institute this and the prices are coming down, they're going to have operational insights and a competitive edge over there neighboring systems. If you can get this data in the EMR, now you can track when the echocardiogram start time is, when Mrs. Jones got there, why she's waiting in the hallway for so long, what is it going to take to get her back to the bed, oh, we don't have enough transport people, why is that? And then you can track your transport people and see, yeah, my transport people are all tied up too, we're just short staffed. Those kinds of operational insights are going to be unique to real-time location services and when you combine it with the EHR data, that is really going to help you measure throughput and operational efficiencies. I think it's very exciting. It's not commonly talked about. I don't see it showing up on a lot of IT radars. But keep it in mind, as the price comes down, this is something that you do want to look at one day. Put it on your back burner as a, as a pet project for, for one day out there. And I'll wrap it up there just as we hit our 30-minute mark. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.